Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. So this week, um, kind of had some mixed emotions this week. Um, on the one hand, uh, Tuesday, you know, we had youth group, we had a game night, and it was a lot of fun. I think my ears are still ringing from, you know, and it's such a joy to hear, to hear the, these young people laughing and screaming, and, and we, ate, we got to eat a bunch of cereal and mix cereal together, and um, it was great, but... At the same time, we learned of the shootings that happened in Texas. And so this week, again, we're brought face-to-face with, with tragedy. I believe, I don't know if, the number, if my numbers are correct, 19 school children, two teachers, and, and I think something like 20 injured around that school area, Robb Elementary. And the response to this, this type of situation, which unfortunately happens all the time, um, the response is to quickly, right after it, to pick sides. Like, I'll, I'll, I don't know why there's sides on this, but we pick sides and we quickly um, make it political and fight about it. And I think this only adds to the tragedy because it takes something that's spiritual in nature and puts it in a position that, that is not very helpful and so as Christians, before we dig our feet into political sand, and I think we should have political sand all over our feet, but before we do that, I believe our response is to come before God and lament and ask God why these things keep happening and to pray for the victims' families. I can't imagine going through that. I'll pray for these communities. Right? Pray for these schools. You know, pray for our teachers. I think our teachers probably have the hardest and least compensated job in this country. Right? We need to be praying for our teachers every single day. And so we need to resist the temptation to fall into arguments that don't profit us. You know, whether we are right on the argument or not, I don't think that, 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 that it's the place to start because it, it doesn't deal with the issue. This is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue that must be dealt with spiritually. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have his word, which means, if we're being very honest, we have the answers to the difficult questions about this sort of thing. Why do these things happen? And how do we stop these things from happening? And I believe we will find the answers here as we finish John chapter 12. Our sermon today is called The Unbelievable gift of belief. And so again, John chapter 12, let me pray for us as we get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you, brokenhearted, Lord, that, that image bearers, Lord, that, that, that young ones were murdered, Lord. And, and we, we just ask how long, how long, oh Lord, is stuff like this going to happen? How long are innocent children and teachers going to be killed? 
How long are we just going to fight in our society over issues that aren't the real issue? And how long before we, as your church, Lord, step in and show people, Lord, the light and, and to preach your gospel, which is the answer to situations like this? Lord, we as a church ask that you, knowing that you are a father who cared, that you would be with these families who are unbelievably heartbroken, that you would bring them comfort, that they'd be able to process the pain, which they should feel, because it's a very painful situation in reality, Lord. I ask that you would be in the communities, Lord, that, that people would come out of this coming to you for answers and, and attending church and seeking you out, Lord, for life's greatest questions and meaning. I ask that you bless, especially the churches in that area, Lord, that's the, for them to respond and to serve that community well. And I also lift up all of our teachers who I truly believe are just on the front lines of several wars at the same time and get little compensation or glory from it, Lord, but you see what they do. And so I just ask, Lord, for your protection, for your blessing on their work, and for them to be able to lead and protect our children, as we do also, Lord, from home. And so we do these things in your name, Lord, and also ask, Lord, that your spirit would help us to understand your word this morning, even as we come across uh, um, difficult teachings. And we ask these things, Lord, to, to you who are awesome, Lord. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 31. John chapter 12, verse 31 And this is Jesus talking. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so the judgment of this world, we have to remember here, whenever it says judgment of the world, that this is an event, right? It's talking about the cross. I think we already knew that, but the judgment of the world is talking about the cross. It's a specific event and not only that, it is the most important event in history, right? At least so far. This, this, this is the event, period. Well, why is that? Well, we find in this judgment, several judgments take place at once. And so the first thing I want to do as we consider the judgment of this world is, is to look at all the judgments that take place in this one judgment. The first is the judgment of Jesus by the world, and so the world judges Jesus, the Son of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate to the sheep, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the resurrection. And what is the judgment of the world on Jesus? Death, right? Rejection. Rejection and death for Jesus. That's what the world says. In fact, John let us know right off the bat, lest we keep our hopes up. He let us know what was going to happen immediately back in, in chapter 1, verse 11, where he's talking about Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so the world rejects instead of receiving Jesus. And so the second judgment, the judgment of the world on itself. And so the world executes judgment on itself by loving darkness and choosing darkness over light. In fact, we read this back in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the what? Judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so their love of darkness is their judgment against them. They have no defense. They, They show by their hearts and their actions what they love. And so their actions are going to be judged. Not only here, but then we see later on in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 15, where John speaking, he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Third, the judgment by and of the ruler of this world, who is Satan. We could also call this point how Satan played himself. How Satan played himself. This whole judgment, right, this is the plan of Satan. He thinks, right? Satan is just getting to work. He has the plans laid out. He's doing all this stuff thinking, man, like I got, I got Jesus. Like I beat the system. I'm taking on God. This is my victory maneuver. And so he's orchestrating the whole thing. In fact, next week in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And so Satan thinks he's pulling off the greatest maneuver ever. And he's doing this because he's operating in darkness. Right? It's like, how, how dumb can Satan be? Well, Satan's not dumb, but he's also limited in what he can see. And so from his point of view, in the darkness, like this is an incredible plan. And in verse 32, it says, by this judgment, the ruler of this world is cast out. So Satan plays himself, like he executes this maneuver, which only hurts him. By this judgment, the ruler loses some of his slaves. As it says in Romans 6, verse 18, And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so believers and receivers of Jesus Christ are no longer slaves to Satan because of what Satan did, right? So Satan sets free his own slaves that he was ruling over. And instead, his kingdom becomes smaller as the kingdom of God is inaugurated at the coming of Christ and then then is then empowered by the death of Christ. Everything turned over and against him. So he begins to lose his rule, and he will slowly lose it over and over. And we've seen this throughout history. Just look at the size of the church today, right? This shift in, in rulers. And this will happen until he's judged completely, along with death and sin. Again, going to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so what we see in the judgment of this world, this event, 
is, yes, a, several judgments taking place, but then it, this also lays the foundation for the second judgment, puts everything in motion to get to the second judgment, the great white throne judgment of Revelation, where this time Jesus is not the one being judged, but it's turned on its head, and Jesus is the one sitting on that awesome white throne. Now, the sobering reality of this eternal judgment, lake of fire, is that it then points out the best part of this judgment, this judgment of the world, which is, it is an unbelievable gift, right? The unbelievable gift in the judgment of the world. At the judgment of the world, at the cross, my sins are judged. Your sins are judged. I know, that doesn't sound good, right? Mm. And look, I've received many great gifts, thoughtful gifts. I've bought myself awesome gifts, right? And so, but nothing is cooler, greater, more practical, significant, important than the judgment of my sins. And we see this on the cross. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So why make Jesus become our sin? Why does Jesus have to become James's sin or your sin? To judge it for this gift of judgment of our sin. Well, at the same time, in that judgment, we are allowed to become righteous children of God through the righteous Son of God. Is there anything better? Is there anything better than that transaction? Is there anything better than that judgment of the world at the cross? The death of Jesus Christ is an unbelievable gift. It is an unbelievable gift. But what kind of death are we talking about? Well, we know, but let's, let's see what this crowd here says. So in verse 32, starting in verse 32, And I, when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he had said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so the crowd gets something. Like the crowd understands something and the crowd doesn't understand something. And so, I mean, good on them. They understand that when it says he's going to be lifted up, they understand that he's talking about dying, right? So they get that, okay, the Messiah is about to die. And again, good on them because they also know that the Messiah is going to go on forever. The Messiah lives forever. And so what, what don't they understand here? Well, they don't understand how they can both happen, right? Um, how can you die and never die? And so, and, and don't get me wrong, it's a perfectly reasonable question if you have an incomplete theology. If you have an incomplete theology, that this is a great question to ask. And so what are they missing in their theology? They are missing the resurrection. Right, that's what they don't get. And, and interesting that even to this day, you know, in, in Jewish communities, what, what is the struggle? What is the, the stumbling block? It's the resurrection, and so we see that here already, that the resurrection is just what, what they don't get. And they're stressing out about it, like we don't get this. And, and Jesus, in his mercy, um, he says, look, like focus, guys. 
Like, focus, stop. Stop overthinking this. Focus on what is in front of you. And Jesus is in front of them. And he's telling them, don't miss what is happening right now. Don't miss what is in front of us, which is the lifting up of Jesus from the earth to the cross. So let's look at the cross. One of the many things I love about the cross is that it is a signal, right? The cross is a signal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But at the end of verse 32, it says, the cross will draw all people to myself, to himself, to Jesus, right? Once the cross goes down, everybody is drawn to him. And so Satan, again, thinks he's pulling off the maneuver. He's going to eliminate Jesus. He's going to eliminate Jesus. And what happens in that elimination move? The cross becomes a signal, right? And so all of a sudden, the opposite happens. Everybody is now drawn right across the whole world. And as we saw last week, you know, even 2,000 years later and 7,500 miles away, we're still being drawn to Christ on the cross. And so what Satan and this crowd miss is Isaiah 5, 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, how quickly they come. And this, this is the signal that's talked about several times in Isaiah. Right? This is the signal from God. Like, it's time to come back, guys. God, that's a signal for God. Come, come back to me. He's made a way. He's made a way to come to himself. And so they come from the ends of the earth. Why? For an unbelievable gift. Like for an unbelievable gift. And so what draws people to, to, this, to this execution, to this death, it, it's the glory of God, right? I mean, you're talking the glory of our holy God here. In one event, God shows his glory in that our sins are atoned for. Right? That, we, that, he's setting, that he's setting people free. While at the same time showing his glory in that he's a just God. And he deals with wickedness and evil and judges it. And so even in this world, as we see things happen, and you think people get away with something, like in Psalm 9, it's not, I don't have the slide, but you know, Psalm 9 talks about that. Nobody's getting away with anything. It may seem like it, but nobody's getting away with anything. And so this claim that God doesn't do anything about evil is wrong. He dealt with it at the cross, and the evil that he didn't deal with at the cross is then going to be dealt with at the second judgment, the one that he judges. And so the cross is where the ultimate evil is turned into the greatest good, where the murder of God is turned into a door to God. And it's an unbelievable gift. I don't know if we ever think about the fact that this was completely unnecessary on God's part. God didn't owe us anything, like nothing at all. And yet all this takes place showing God's heart, showing God's grace, showing God's glory in that he would do this for us. But here's the thing about an unbelievable gift like this. You must believe in it, right? So you must believe in the unbelievable gift. Which means the most unbelievable gift is what? The gift of belief. That is the ultimate gift. 
I will always preach that. The, the, the greatest gift, most unbelievable gift is the gift of belief. And we must believe while we can. We must believe while we can. Let's read verses 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And so he's saying, don't miss what's right in front of you. Right? It's almost like me looking into these lights right now and squinting. Like, it's right in front of you. Don't miss the fact that these lights are here, that they are in front of the light. And the imperative here, come to the light. What, what is the application of the, of the book of John? When we're done with the book of John and we look back, we said, what was the book of John about? Believe. Right? Several times John says, I am writing this so you believe. I am not writing this so you think God is awesome. I'm writing this so you think God is awesome and believe. Right? All this is to convince you to believe. And so the imperative here with Jesus is believe in the light. Believe in what you are seeing right now. And so there's two parts to this. The first is that the gift of belief is the calling out from unbelief. Unbelief or rejection of Jesus is our default. It is our default. People love darkness more. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, None is righteous. None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And so it is impossible to believe unless you are called from unbelief by God. And even if you're thinking right now, well, maybe, no, not one, ever, anyone, ever could have just chosen God. You must be drawn out of that darkness by the light. The first repentance is repentance from unbelief. The repentance from unbelief is an unbelievable gift. Second, what we see here is this belief is urgent. Walk in it while you have it. This crowd in the text is staring at Jesus, who's telling them to please believe. He's about to die, and he's begging them. Their window's closing. That unique opportunity to stare into the eyes of Jesus is closing for them. And you could argue, that's um, not even an argument, no, we, we don't see Jesus in this same way, right? Well, we're not looking into the eyes of Jesus right now, but we have his word. We have his words in his word, and we have the Holy Spirit. And if you remember back in John chapter 3, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's the main function of the Holy Spirit? He gives the most unbelievable gift, right? That is step one. The Holy Spirit is the giver of this unbelievable gift, according to John 3. And as I was reading through these verses and praying through them, the thing that really stuck out to me as I was praying for this church is the youth of this church, right? The youth of this church. Like youth, you have 
people around you who show that light, who talk about it. You come once a week to church and you are exposed to that light. But before you know it, you're going to come to a day where you go to school or get a job and get married and depending on what kind of school or what kind of person you marry, your exposure to the light can cease or or decrease. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't or won't hear again, but also that chance is there. This may be the most light you get in your life, and therefore, now is the time to respond to that, to become a child of God. And I I truly believe this with all my heart. All the youth, if you've been to youth group, you know I love you, and I'm honest with you. I think being the best adult you can possibly be is by being a child of God. And if not, if you're not a child of God, well, then you're walking in darkness. And so let's look at this darkness. What do we know about the darkness here? Well, it's the default love. And I can't tell you how important it is to know this. Know this about yourself. You need to know this about yourself. I know this about myself. Our default is not love for God. It is love of darkness Right? As we read, no one seeks, understands, no one knows. No one is righteous. And so the default is the love of darkness. And you can't see the switch to turn on the light because it's spiritual. And you can't do it anyway because it's spiritual. But you need to know that. that that's what brings glory to Jesus in this situation. And so in verse 35, again, it says, Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. So it can overtake you, and, it, and you don't know where you are going. Of course you don't know where you're going. If you are on a road, whether you are spiritual or not, whether you've been born again or not, if you knew at the end of the road... The end of that road is a lake of fire. You would not stay on that road. You don't have to be born again. You know what a lake of fire is? Yeah, you don't want that. But if you're in darkness, you don't see it. You can't see it. Because people would jump off that road. Of course. So what does it look like to walk in darkness? Well, again, sadly, you don't know you're in darkness because you could be in a room like this and be in complete darkness. And so when we look at events like school shootings, we need to be really honest about this and say, we know why things like this happen. We know, well, it starts when we teach our kids that life is meaningless or show our kids that life is meaningless. We do this when we don't teach our kids how to process negativity. This world is ridiculously negative. And we don't teach them that it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a bad season. It's okay. Like, you're going to be all right. And we don't teach kids how to have healthier responses to all this stress that they are under. Walking in darkness means not knowing that that actions have consequences and not knowing that ideas have consequences. 
It's living in a world of influencers instead of heroes and role models. Entitlement instead of work ethic. People living in fantasy worlds and demanding you play along instead of choosing a crazy awesome goal and sacrificing everything to achieve it. Walking in darkness is desensitizing violence so that war is just a game and life is expendable on the altar of Darwinism. Walking in darkness is thinking it's okay to walk into a school and shoot kids and teachers. That is more than a tragedy. That is a judgment. That is a judgment of a world who chooses darkness. And this is the result of minimizing God in our homes, banning God in our schools, and saying God is dead in our highest academia. Without God, what do we have left? What are the options? Well, I think it's pretty much down to three options. One, um, our loved ones get murdered, or they become murderers, or, or thankfully they survive that and then just walk head down staring at a screen into the lake of fire. That's what happens in darkness. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling out of that darkness. God doesn't want us in there. God wants us to come out of that. And so he pleads with us to walk in the light. Walking in the light, that, that's serving, that's embracing and believing in the words of Jesus, as we see later on in the chapter. You know, in the word of God, we have a different way to walk. And let people make fun of us because we want to tell the truth, right, and, and not be mean to each other. It's like, I don't understand how people think that the, that the Christian religion is bad. Like, if, even if I wasn't a Christian, I'd want a Christian neighbor, like somebody who's honest and is going is to make my life better? I, I think that's a great thing. And so what we need right now, today in this world, besides more coming to the light, which is what we want, is we need the light to be the light, right? We need the light to be the light, and we don't do that by doing the same things that those in darkness do. And so that is something to think about. Our reaction has to be different than their reaction. Which brings up a great question that John anticipates in this book. And it's interesting because he switches from narrative and then just starts like preaching, right? And so John starts editorializing what just happened. And he's, he's going to do this because he knows that you're going to ask, why wouldn't anybody come to the light? Like, who would not come to the light? Who would reject Jesus face-to-face? -face? Jesus teaching, doing the miracles, um, these same people who a couple of minutes ago or seconds ago heard God speak from the sky? How are they not coming to the faith? And we find the answers in verse 37, 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why didn't they believe? Well, verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, what did Isaiah say? Verses 38, 39, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. And, and here, here's the hard truth this morning, church. For some, the unbelievable gift is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Some receive the gift of belief and some don't. And there are two parts to this. Uh, those who receive the unbelievable gift of belief. Verse 38, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. And again, we see those who believe, believe for a reason. And it's not because they're awesome or spiritual intellectuals. It's because it says here, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. God has showed them. God has chosen them. God has showed them exactly what is happening. Again, what happens if God doesn't reveal this to you? Well, you're in your default mode. You don't know. You're in darkness. And so you could look Jesus in the eyes and reject him. And this aligns with everything we've already learned in John 3, 6, and 10, including John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. And so what, what words do we see here again? No one. No one. That's what makes this gift unbelievable. Because no one ever had this option, right? No one could ever, you couldn't put this on, on, on a wish list. No one could believe unless, unless the Father calls them. And so what we see here is that the Father sends Jesus the Son to what? Be lifted up to be a signal. And once that signal is lit, the cross, God, it says God the Father draws people to that signal. What happens when people are drawn to that signal? Jesus says, and we saw multiple times in John 6, Jesus says, oh, those people who are drawn, I'm going to lift them up on the last day. So it all works together. The saving of the chosen an unbelievable gift to be taken from being a no one, from being a no one to being a child of God by nothing you said, did, thought, wished. Second, I mean, that's the fun part. That's, that's the unbelievably awesome part. Second, there are those who remain in unbelief. In fact, they could not believe, it says. To fulfill the words of Isaiah, and then John gives more more verses, because this is, this is hard. And so he gives more of Isaiah. And so verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so, look, God didn't force these people to sin. That, that, that's a false narrative. It's a straw man. God didn't force these people to sin. They were already sinning. But we have to accept here is that God didn't reveal himself. God did not show them what he was doing. They didn't know the voice of Jesus. In fact, here, what it says is their plan was for their unbelief to remain. The plan was for them not to believe. That was the plan. And so what we see is the unbelief of some is used for the belief of others. And you can counter and wonder, and I, and I think it's okay. Well, what's wrong with them seeing and believing and coming to the faith? Isn't that why we're here? Right? But what we see here clearly is God lets their, their, their present unbelief remain so it runs its ordained course, which is what? Killing Jesus. It's to kill Jesus. If they turn from their unbelief, they don't kill Jesus. And so God the Father leverages the ruler of this world and the evil and the darkness to create this judgment of the world. And in this, this judgment of the world, my sins, your sins are judged. And then that's all that's required is belief. And so some get this unbelievable gift of belief while others 
to others, it is unbelievable because of their unbelief. And this could be a difficult subject to comprehend. Right? Hence, a lot of quietness in here. It's so difficult. And in fact, several of you have talked to me about this. And I, as I was trying to think, I think everybody who's had this conversation with me has pointed to this verse. Right? We, can, we can't get around this. That, that, that's the beauty of going uh, through the Bible verse by verse. Yeah, there's some awesome, happy, clappy, awesome verses. But then there's some soul-wrenching things that we have to come to grips with. And so, what do we do with this difficult teaching? Well, the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at three ways to react to the sovereignty of God. Because that, that's the issue here, is the sovereignty of God. The first is to realize that it's biblical. Realize that the sovereignty of God is biblical. And so our reaction to the sovereignty of God shouldn't be different from our reaction to any other doctrine that we find in the Bible. But if you choose to treat it differently, then I would say, Treat it more seriously. Well, why? Look at the way John treats it. John's talked about it multiple times, like in every great teaching of Jesus sort of brings this along with it. So this was really important to John because Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus wants people to understand this. Why does Jesus want people to know this? Because the glory is his. Right? The glory belongs to Jesus. And Jesus does these things to what? Glorify the Father. And so what does that mean? Jesus wants you to know that if you are saved, it is not because you are awesome. It's because he is awesome. And it's not because you're lovable. Even though you guys are lovable, you're not saved because you're lovable. You're saved because of Jesus' awesome love. And so he gets the glory for that. And why does he do those things? Well, because God the Father told him. Why? Because God the Father is awesome. And that's why we sing songs to this God, to our God, because God is awesome and it is his glory. And so this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, or if you want to call it predestination, election, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, we have to agree that it's just what Jesus said was true. Even Isaiah in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so as Isaiah is saying this, and Isaiah is filled with verses like this, filled with verses exactly like this one, what does Isaiah say? Well, I'm just repeating what Jesus told me. That's what Jesus told me, and it was glorious. Isaiah saw the big picture, and it was glorious. And so John here, what is John saying? John is just repeating what, what Jesus says. And so we have to realize that this teaching is biblical. Which means, once you get to that point, when you realize it's biblical, is there's only two responses left to that. And I think we find both of them on the road to and from Sodom and Gomorrah, back in Genesis 19. And so the second way to react to the sovereignty of God, and this isn't a good way to react to it, is to turn your back on God is to turn your back on God. I'm talking about leaving the faith. I'm talking about, I've had conversations with people, you know, with tears running down my face, leaving the faith. Why? Because of this doctrine. 
which is what we saw in John chapter 6. When everybody heard this, what did they do? Not everybody. Most people left. They, they don't want anything to do with this. Some people can't deal with the fact that God could save some and doesn't. They can't deal with the fact that God would do something that they wouldn't do or that God would not submit to their understanding of what he could do. But you can't sacrifice the sovereignty of God and your theology. Once you do that, you no longer have God. Once you sacrifice the sovereignty of God, your God is quickly going to look a lot like yourself. And then after that, he'll be gone completely. Because why do you need a God who already looks like yourself? And so you just become your own God. We can't sacrifice the sovereignty of God. Why else? I mean, why would we even pray then if we don't believe that God is sovereign over everything? And yet we, st we still see those who appear to have light and turn away from it. In Genesis 19, 24 through 26, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And so what we see here is that judgment came. Right? The judgment of God came and God called out Lot's family. Called Lot's family out of that judgment and all they had to do was stay saved. Get out of there, head this direction. Lot's wife should have been, thank you, God. Like she could probably smell the sulfur and hear the explosions and raining fire behind her. And that should have provoked worship. Why would you choose me, God? Why would you choose me out of everybody in my family to save? But for reasons we don't understand, and we can only speculate, maybe she had something she left behind, people she left behind, maybe a specific sin, maybe sympathy for those who were being judged, she turns around and she turns her back on where God wanted her to go and become salt. Church, don't turn your back on God. Don't turn your back on the faith because you wrestle with a doctrine that only God can comprehend. We can't comprehend it. Don't reject your salvation. Don't reject your gift because you can't see what God sees. If you are called to God and drawn to God, that should blow your mind. That's why it's important to know that your default is darkness. To know that none of you, not one of you, as much as I love you and I think you're awesome, was awesome enough to choose God. So if you're here this morning, you have already received a gift that well, the rest of the world thinks this is absolute nonsense, that you come in faith here. Don't walk away from your faith. Walk in your faith. Walk in faith that God is God and he's a good God. And let the things of God belong to God, even if we don't understand what they are. And then third, let's be like the third reaction, and that's to receive this gift, gift and share it with others. 
So in Genesis 18, before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel of the Lord is talking to Abraham, and they're just right up the road. Judgment is right up the road. And the angel of the Lord, who I believe, like most people, is, is Jesus, is telling Abraham, judgment is going down. Like here, this judgment, the, I have chosen to, to judge these people. So what is Abraham's reaction to this? Does he reject the sovereignty of God to do that? Does he leave God? Does he leave the faith? Does, does he stop serving God? No. Even though he knows judgment has been ordained, he starts interceding for people. Right? And so, I know us. Like, we, we, we don't have the luxury of knowing to whom judgment is coming or to the, who the gift of belief has been given. But we have to proceed like Abraham Knowing that judgment on darkness is coming, we need to preach the light of the gospel and call people out of the darkness. We must ask God for the salvation of souls. We must ask for the gift of faith for others. And so we know from Matthew 4.19 that we're called to be fishers of men, right? To fish for people's souls. Go get them. We need, we need these souls to come to the light. Not only are we called to be fishers of men, but in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, it says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. And so, put those together. We are called to be fishers of men. And we have an awesome father who says what? You ask me for a fish, what am I going to give you? Fish. Right? Because he gives awesome gifts. And, and he says he's not going to give stone or a heart of stone or a serpent, right? The image of sin itself. It's like if you ask for a fish... I'm going to give you a fish because I'm awesome like that. I'm an awesome dad. And so what we see here is our Father who gives great gifts. Well, what, what is the greatest, most unbelievable gift ever? What is the greatest, most unbelievable gift ever? Somebody say it. Belief? Did I hear belief? Yes? Perfect. So faith, belief, yes, that, that is the ultimate gift. And so... We need to ask for this for other people. Knowing that judgment is coming, God has still sent us out into the world as missionaries. Even though he knows that some people have the gift, some don't, but we also see in Abraham that judgment was coming and God was still willing to listen and move that judgment a little bit. Isn't that interesting? Do I know how that works? No, I don't. But I saw, I saw that narrative of God listening to his children I saw somebody leveraging God's love for his children and leveraging God's sovereignty to save. And so we need to ask for belief for others. Receive that belief and ask for it for others. Not only for the salvation of their souls, but for the benefit of our society. For the unity of our society. Right? For the life of unborn babies. For the life of children and teachers and students and and, and quite honestly, to kick Satan in the throat, right? And to cast him down. 
right? That blow's already been struck. And so let's drag Satan. Don't give him anything more. Fight against him. The answer to darkness in our world is light. And so church, we are the light. Let us be the light. That, that, that should be our response. Our light is the unbelievable gift that was given to us. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.